Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. Hey, Food Junkies listeners, Clarissa here. Happy 150 episodes. We cannot think of a better guest to celebrate it with than one of our favorite mind-blowing leaders in the field, Dr. David Wiss. Dr. Wiss became a registered dietitian nutritionist in 2013 and founded Nutrition in Recovery. It's a group practice of other registered dietitian nutritionists specializing in treating eating and substance use disorders. He earned his PhD in public health with a minor in health psychology from UCLA. Dr. Wiss is a scientific author with over 20 peer-reviewed publications. If you haven't read them, read them. A nutrition and health consultant functional medicine practitioner, recovery coach, and passionate educator. Today, we're going to learn all about his revolutionary new Wise Mind Nutrition app, which focuses on the intersection of nutrition and mental health. Dr. Wiss also speaks to us about his recent article, How the Nutrition Field Became Toxic and What We Can Do About It. He shares his thoughts on 12-step food programs and... He lovingly shares what he has learned in his 17 years of recovery experience. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. We are so excited to have Dr. David Wiss back on the Food Junkies podcast. How are you doing today? Life is so good and I'm so excited to talk to you both. I I just love both of you and I love your show and I'm really excited to be here. Awesome. Well, we are really excited to have you because we know you have finally launched Wise Mind Nutrition App and we want to hear all about it. So can you share a little bit more about how it might help listeners, A, who identify with having food addiction, but also is it a good fit for people who also identify with an eating disorder? Yes, thank you. It's such an exciting time for me because the app is live and people are working the program and I'm getting feedback emails about transformations and miracles and it's super, super meaningful to know that the work that I put in is translating into some outcomes. So Why Is My Nutrition is a uh, passion project, but it's also a fusion project. You know, the main goal of it was to start a conversation around nutrition for depression, anxiety, trauma, ADHD, and some of these other mental health outcomes. So, you know, there's been a nutrition conversation around eating disorders. There's been a nutrition conversation around food addiction. I've really been a part of the conversation around nutrition for substance use disorders. And so I'm really trying to be inclusive with the Wise Mind Nutrition message to say that someone with anywhere on that list could actually get something significant from the program, right? And so when I say it's a fusion, right? I uh, I had some cuisine the other day and, and, and it made me really think it was, um, well, let me backtrack. Let's talk about Mexican cuisine for a second, traditional Mexican food, right? It has a legacy, it has a history, it goes back in time and there's people that know how this food is made back in Mexico, right? And and they might be there to defend it with a warranted sense of pride, right? Like, this is how we do it. This is what we do. This is Mexican food, right? And then you could get some different type of uh, cuisine, like, for example, Korean food, right? Very different from Mexican food, totally different part of the world, has its own historical legacy, has its own traditions, its own set of seasonings and different oils that it uses to create a totally different culinary experience, right? And uh, a person that has a skill set with Korean cuisine might defend their way of serving Korean food and say, no, 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 that's not Korean food. This is Korean food, right? The way they make their kimchi, et cetera, right? So the other day I had a fusion between Korean food and Mexican food. 
and it was one of the most amazing things I've ever had. And I've had it before. This is when you could take like the bulgogi and the and the uh, uh, kimchi and put it in a taco, right? Korean style burrito, right? And as I was eating it, I realized that this was such an intelligent fusion of different specialties, right? That came together and that it was such a unique experience that felt so, uh, uh, it landed on me as so intelligent. But I also thought that it probably pissed some people that are into Mexican cuisine off a little bit. And it probably pissed some people that were into Korean food off a little bit. The traditionalists were like, no, you can't fuse these two different things. You can't mix that with that. And, and I realized that there are the people that are traditionalists that will defend something for good reason. This is how we do it around here. And there's people that are into fusion, taking different ideas and bringing them all together in a new and meaningful way. And that's what Wise Mind Nutrition really represents. It really is a fusion energy between traditional eating disorder mindset and some of this new energy around food addiction, the neuroscience of eating behavior. So the majority of my efforts went into creating a food log and a program that could work for someone that had a food addiction and could also work for someone that had a restrictive eating disorder. And that's the beauty of Wise My Nutrition. It's a fusion project that brings the intelligence from different traditions all together to create a unique experience that will be like a party in someone's brain. So is there also psychoeducation on this app? Like you say, it's a food log. What else can the listener get from this app? So it started off as a program, which is video-based and has assignments and resources, handouts, recipes. I, I, I created a program, you know, started in, you know, 2021 at the beginning of the year, uh, which could be used uh, for someone to become educated and to do some work. So it's it's a little bit more of an active program than a passive program. I think a lot of people like some people prefer just like, you know, pressing play and kind of kicking back and watching and seeing what you learn. It's active, which means that like you're going to be setting intentions. You're going to be doing a little uh, summarizing, writing a paragraph, right? Making some selections and all the work that someone does. Uh, this was the beauty of an app. Instead of it being just videos online, there's a there's a workbook. So someone can actually do the assignments and have it all come together in one place and modify it at any time. Let's say, you know, a couple of days later, you have an aha moment and you realize there's some new barrier that you've recognized for cooking food at home and you can come back and add that into the app, right? So, so there's a program and it's personalized based on mental health. So I spent a lot of time thinking about if someone scored Uh, screen positive for depressive symptoms or anxiety symptoms or trauma or addiction or eating disorder, what might be some additional messaging that would make them feel like they were being understood throughout the program, right? So, So we come in with additional resources, say, hey, listen, this is a particularly relevant thing for you. Check this out. You should do this, right? And this is based on my years of clinical experience and my work as a scientist using screening tools to figure out like if someone's below this or above this, they should probably get a little bit more tailored information, right? So so that's the uh, uh, foundation of Wise Mind Nutrition. There's also a food log in there, which I, I would like to try to present as a, a, a novel framework, meaning that it isn't like any of the other food logs that are out there. And the main difference is that, you know, you're able to get very deliberate and intentional about food without using the metrics. I do believe that the numbers are very appealing to people. And there are people that are going to come into the app and say, I don't want an app that doesn't have my numbers, right? But it's for the people that have done the number thing so much and haven't ended up in a good solid place, or for the person that knows that that level of detail is not good for them, right? There are some people that are just numbers people and there's people that know there aren't, right? So it's for the people that know there aren't and for the people that have failed trying to be a numbers person with nutrition. So it's a qualitative food log that looks at food groups, hunger fullness. It emphasizes things like colors and actually eating, you know, food that's identifiable into the food group system, right? So it's a real subtle way of promoting minimally processed foods without demonizing any particular foods. At no point do we tell people what not to eat. 
I do have a point of view about artificial sweeteners that I put in there a little bit. I couldn't help it, you guys. I'm sorry. It's just a thing. I, you know what I mean? And so it's very food positive in that regard. And um, someone could come in and just use the food log and not watch the videos. If they don't want to do education, they just want to do food logging, it's there. Someone could come in and just do the video series and not the food log, it's there. But they're all tied together through a nightly review. The nightly review is at the end of the day, you kind of look back at your day, you look back at the intentions you set, and you ask yourself, you know, what, what could I have done better? What did I do well? What corrective measures can I take? And it gives someone a chance to just grow. So as someone does a nightly review, it tallies up some components of their food log for the day, like your food group distribution, how many times did you eat the different foods? And it gives you a chance to see what you could do differently the next day. And then it moves someone to the next day in the program. So there's uh, 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 two components to it. They come together and they're separate and distinct. I think the, the coolest parts about the Wise My Nutrition app are one, the personalized messaging based on mental health scores. And then if someone continues on with the program, they'll be able to see how their mental health improves over time. So you can see, you know, my depression scores have gone down from doing, you know, gut-friendly anti-inflammatory eating and meditation and other contemplative practices. Cooking my own food has improved my mental health. This is amazing. I want to keep doing that. And the other really awesome part of the app is the connect feature, which allows people to view other people's food logs. So it's originally kind of conceptualized as a clinician connect to where like a provider like myself or one of you could kind of watch your client as they're logging their food. But um, I've recently realized that that framework can is gonna is we're expanding it to where like yeah what if my client wants to see my food why not i'm gonna i'm gonna upload some things in there and what if four people that are in recovery together all want to follow each other and so it's creating a little bit of a community and you know there's a level of anonymity to it you can't see who others who's following who and there isn't that level of engagement but it allows for people to coach other people through the program to get support, to show support so that it can really be a recovery movement. It's amazing. I, I've always, ever since I found you, I think I was just talking to Dr. Kim Dennis on Tuesday and I was interviewing her for the Kick Sugar Summit. And she was like, you know, who watches these things? And I was, you know, she's like, do professionals watch these things? And I was like, well, I do, because I'm pretty sure that's how I found David, <laughs> you know, like, and ever since I found you and started following you on social media and getting to talk to you and um, collaborate on some things, you know, I think the thing that I've always appreciated about you most is that you're very open about your biases. You're very open about your thoughts on things. And, you know, that recently came out when you wrote an article, you know, um, I think it was titled How the Nutrition Field Became Toxic and What We Can Do About It. We were just wondering if you could share a little bit about what inspired you to write that, especially in the like of the most recent stuff we've seen coming out, um, like in the Washington Post, which highlighted the food industry is being paid or they're paying influencers, excuse me, to um, shape our eating habits. So can you kind of talk to us yeah. about what's going on there? That big Washington Post article that really just slammed dietitians uh, came out a month or so after my article and definitely provided some substantial support for my points of view. And, you know, I appreciated it. I did. I think it was, you know, definitely not well received by a lot of my colleagues, but I was the one that was like, you know, yeah, it's kind of true. And we need to talk more about these things. I've been talking about these things for my whole career, right? I started off my career talking about these things. And so, you know, I never felt like I fit in in, in the nutrition world. But when there was a grassroots movement of people that were sort of, you know, trying to, you know, call out conflicts of interest and say that there's actually a lot of foul play going on here, I was like, those are my people. That was like, that was my tribe. And we formed a group early on called Dietitians for Professional Integrity that kind of felt embarrassed about the state of our field. It was embarrassing that we would go to school and become dietitians and then come to find out that like the general public doesn't really look up to us as the expert that we were told we were going to be, you know, and, and, and I was sad, you know, in, in my early career. And, and it really felt like my credential was being exploited for capitalistic gain. And that didn't feel like something I wanted to be a part of. 
So I was a part of the counterculture movement, which was, you know, trying to make systemic change. And we did. We did. From 2013 to 2017, we blew whistles. We called people out. And the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, you know, implemented a task force to be more clear about their sponsorship guidelines. And we got to weigh in on that. But they never really acknowledged us as a group, right? Because we were sort of like this rebel group and they wanted to squash us. And just the way, you know, big corporations seem to do is like, you know, they kind of did, you know, like they had more, more money, more endurance. And like, after many, many years of making some changes, like we were exhausted, you know, it's like trying to sue. It's like trying to go up again in court against a big corporation. Like they're just going to like delay and make it so that your legal fees just get overwhelming. And then you're eventually just done. You know what I mean? That, that felt like the strategy that they were using it was like, just delay, keep doing business as usual, give them a little bit of hope. And, um, you know, I never wanted to leave the academy altogether. I wanted to change it and I wanted to change it from within, you know? So after that, I felt like a little bit more integrated and I got involved a little bit, but the legacy continued, you know, as you would expect it to be when there's people from multinational food corporations on the board of directors that have agendas, right? And they have ways of spinning narratives. They continue to, to, to do that. And they've continued to do it to the point where, you know, I started to notice it happening in the co-opting of the eating disorder message, right? Is that we have this really important message of food inclusivity for people that are restrictive, right? I've always called it the non-diet message. And there's people that call it the anti-diet message, right? That like you're really against anything that has to do with health, right? And that message is really awesome and useful for a very small subset of the population. And I noticed that these food companies were amplifying the voices of dietitians that had an eating disorder background in order to promote their private profit agendas, right? And I don't even think that a lot of those dietitians that were called out in that article are malicious at all. And I don't even believe any of them to have even thought that they were even doing anything wrong. I believe them to be food positive dietitians that have an ethos of all foods fit that comes from their training. That's their camp. And then when someone comes to them and says, yeah, we think your message is great. We want to give you some money and amplify your voice a little bit. Like they're like, wow, this non-diet message is really picking up steam. We're going to make a difference. This is eating disorder prevention. And like, it turns out that it's not actually eating disorder prevention. It's food companies exploiting uh, 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 susceptible individuals to get their message out to like eat the lollipop with dinner, right? Give the kid the sugar so that they don't binge. And I don't think a lot of the dietitians even realized it right? They don't really realize that they're being taken advantage of by greedy corporations, right? And I've always seen this stuff like crystal clear. Maybe I'm neurodivergent. Maybe I have trauma that makes gives me an antenna. But like the things that I see that are so obvious to me, I feel like other people just don't see. And so I wrote that article to put words and feelings to the stuff that I'm seeing because I know that either some people aren't seeing it, other dietitians are seeing it, but they're just afraid to say something about it. Or a lot of dietitians and other professionals, eating disorder professionals have been thinking it subconsciously, but never were able to pull it together. So the feedback from my article, how the nutrition field became toxic and what we can do about it was overwhelmingly positive. I got so many emails for, and they're still going, conversations, supervision relationships that were started. And it was a really big move for me to kind of put myself on the line once again and say, I'm willing to take a risk. You know, I'm going to put myself out there. I'm going to share some things about me so that you'll even listen to me in the first place. Right. And uh, I'm, I feel great about that article. And yeah, I've been involved in some conversations since that time. And uh, yeah, I think uh, to summarize, you know, the, my field, the, you know, the field of eating disorders definitely feels fractured and needs like a big hug, you know, and like, I need a big hug too, you know, and like, I wanted that article to be like a big hug, you know, and it was for many people. And of course, there were people that, you know, didn't like the sentiments of it the same way there's people that didn't like the sentiments of the Washington Post article, right? Uh, there's some people that feel threatened by it. And I do think that when people build sandcastles, 
uh, the water and the wind eventually shows up. You know what I'm saying? The other creatures eventually show up and the elements like, you know, deconstruct sandcastles. And then when that falls apart, like you can't be upset, you know, it was a sandcastle in the first place. Oh, I love that so much. And I also was thinking about how when you were first started talking, you said, you know, I kind of had this caveat about sweeteners and actually the whole real article started with, you know, the World Health Organization saying aspartame is carcinogenic. And so before I ask you my next question, can you speak a little bit about your opinion on sweeteners? We certainly have individuals who use them as a harm reduction tool, but maybe, you know, your level of education around it and information might be helpful for some people deciding whether to incorporate them or not. It's funny you say that because as soon as I said, you know, I, I well, I was like, I take one kind of strong point of view in why is my nutrition? And that's like to reduce or eliminate artificial sweetener. I was like, oh, I just lost a bunch of people, right? There's a bunch of people that are like, oh, I'm not going to that app, right? And, you know, I think the way that I message it in in, in the program is to try to re-establish the association between like sweets and energy in the brain. I think that to be a productive thing for long-term eating behaviors. I really, really do. So there's, there's a lot of reasons why we could, you know, demonize or, you know, you know, really target artificial sweeteners as being problematic. And like, I've never been interested in, in like the cancer outcomes or the long-term health outcomes. I've always been interested more in the kind of more short-term or, or middle-term relationship with food stuff. You know, there's been research on, you know, gut microbiota being altered in some negative ways, reduced bacterial diversity. There's been some pushback on that literature. There's been some evidence about blood sugar and glycemic response and how it, the artificial sweeteners help with blood sugar control in the short term. But in the more immediate term, like later on the day, if someone has actual carbohydrates, the blood sugar response is not as favorable. So you don't get a, a spike in the in the first few minutes. But if you have, you know, uh, rice later on, it'll spike more than it normally would if you didn't have the artificial sweeteners. And so that's uh, a key finding that I think, you know, people don't know of. OK, it's like, you know, the the effect later. And that's one of the tricks of research. You know, you can measure things at different time points. You measure something at a short time point, but it doesn't show something at a longer time point, right? But I think the main one for me is just like, I don't know. And I know you guys have a lot of keto listeners and a lot of super low carb listeners, but like, I don't know. I'm kind of a fan of fruit, you know? I am. And I, I believe in it. Like, I believe that, especially in the mental health conversation, some of the most potent antioxidant compounds and the polyphenol compounds are in those really colorful fruits, you know? And I know, I believe in low carb. I do. I really do. And I know that there's a lot of people that low carb that, you know, can do the blueberries and the blackberries and get some of those really potent colors and get some of those benefits. But yeah, it's been my experience when people use a lot of artificial sweeteners, fruit doesn't taste that good to them or is aversive. And there is a pattern of people using artificial sweeteners and not eating fruit on a more sort of ketogenic, super low carb approach. And I do think that that's an eggshell situation. I do. I think that like it really is. If that's someone's current plan and it, it's working, it could work in the short term. But in the bigger picture, those are the sort of a lot of recipes for disaster, at least what I've seen clinically, you know, and I don't have the data to back that up. But if someone's on a lower carb plan and they have a little bit of fruit and they've kind of gotten off artificial sweeteners for the most, I feel like that's sustainable and safe. But if someone's like on no fruit, low carb and a ton of artificial sweeteners, it feels like a binge in the bank to me. It does. You mm -hmm. know, and I know that there's people that are pulling it off. And again, is there's a difference between pulling something off in the short term versus the long term? What's going to happen five years from now? You know what I mean? Right. And our listeners are looking for long term recovery, right? Not that short term immediate result. It may be sometimes immediate. We want to get that weight, release that weight. But in the long term, we want to be free from the obsession with food. And so that's where I really value your opinion. And again, not to demonize, but just to educate. Right. And so yeah, and I've, I've never had a hard time demonizing artificial sweeteners because they're not really food. Yeah, I try true. not to demonize food. You know what I mean? True. But it's not even food. We're not even talking about food right now. 
It's like yeah. chemicals. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's awesome. And it's why I appreciate you so much. Hey, Food Junkies listeners. We're just going to take a quick break here to share with you something our team thinks could help benefit your recovery with food, body, or self. Thank you again for listening. Hey, Food Junkie listeners. Have you read the book, Food Junkies Recovery from Food Addiction yet? It all starts there. This is the book with the basic theory and clinical knowledge of food addiction. Read this book first to get the basics. Our Food Junkies podcast jumps off from the book and is the ongoing breathing version, ever growing and ever expanding. Our podcast introduces you to all the issues of food addiction and the who's who of food addiction today. And if we at the Food Junkies podcast have inspired you to action, either to quit sugar or some other triggering foods or behavior, and you need some extra support, then please join the free Facebook group, I'm Sweet Enough Sugar Free for Life. There you will find a community of people who come from all parts of the spectrum, from the new and just starting out, to the long timers who call themselves food addicts in recovery, to counselors ready to give back and help you. The Facebook group even offers free support Zoom groups. Basically, it's a great online living resource of food addiction to help you stay sugar-free for life. So please join us. Now back to the show. If you have enjoyed this episode, please let us know. We love to hear from you. Kindly leave us a review on whatever platform you listen to our podcast on. We love getting feedback from our listeners. I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit more about the follow the money concept. And maybe if I'm somebody and I'm out there kind of looking for a registered dietitian, someone to really take some nutritional advice from, is there any way that I can determine if they might be aligned with big food? Or is there a way I can like spot any kind of nutritional advice that might be credible or not? Any telltale signs? I think one of the bigger criticisms of the Washington Post article was it made it seem like all dietitians are like that. And that is just not the case at all. They they pick they picked a handful. And and I also want to come back to the eating disorder conversation. Registered dietitian nutritionists are the professionals that treat eating disorders, right? There aren't like a lot of other nutrition professionals that can work in eating disorder treatments or in hospitals. So we have a strong bias towards seeing the negatives around food, stronger than any other professional. Someone who works with you know, clinically significant eating disorders for decades has a different perspective about things than someone who's never actually done eating disorder treatment and care. You know what I mean? So registered dietitians have a natural bias toward some of the non-diet or even anti-diet energy. But like, I think a lot of healthcare professionals have been exploited by big food, selling supplements, chiropractors, doctors, like, it's like the crazy, like, it's everywhere. So to think that this is like a registered dietitian nutritionist phenomenon is is a little inaccurate. It is true that registered dietitian nutritionists can have that strong affiliation with food industry friendly messaging, you know, the sort of predictable messaging of like, oh, there's nothing wrong with GMOs, right? Like, everything's fine. There's no, don't worry about the colors in the food. You guys are tripping, right? Like that does come from the registered dietitian more than a lot of other professionals. But I think the follow the money concept is just everywhere in our society, right? You know, anyone has a bias toward taking uh, uh, money to promote a product or to make money off of a product. And that's just such a pervasive theme in our society that, I mean, the reality of it is like anything that's online, you should be skeptical of in our day and age, right? And, you know, it's a crazy world where online is becoming the norm. You know, there's a lot of healthcare professionals, you know, and I would consider myself one of them that like, you know, the majority of my business is not online. I have an office, you know what I mean? And like, I meet people and get referrals from other healthcare professionals, right? And I don't necessarily depend on online for, for my business survival, but there's a lot of people that do. Their entire business is based on their online presence. And so, you know, yes, I think follow the money uh, definitely points to big food collaborations that could be suspect in nature, but it also applies to someone that's going to make a catchy video to go viral 
with a hook in there because they want more views on their page and more people to buy their course. We are so susceptible to doing things that are outside of our comfort zone for financial gain nowadays. And I think the crazy part is for a lot of people, it's not even outside of their comfort zone. It's a, it's just, it's just the norm. It's the norm. Now you do what you got to do to get views. And these are why people like myself, I think uh, maybe you guys as well, if you have old souls, right. And you just feel like the number one thing in the world is to like have integrity, right. That it's harder to survive in this competitive online world where it is like follow the money. And, you know, there are some of us that, you know, can like get on board and do the the online thing. And there's those of us that are like, you know, I'd rather stay true to my original message. And, you know, that's the, that's the trade-off of our days. And yeah, that's another reason why I wrote the article. I just want to let people know that I have a depth, there's a depth to me. I'm not for sale. You know what I'm saying? You can't, you can't, you can't buy me out. You know, it'll never happen. You know? I think we feel the same way. You know, we've been approached by companies with products or whatever to be sponsors for the podcast. And we're like, as soon as we do that, now we've aligned with you where it's like promote, right? Like we are literally promoting your product. Like somehow we um, have the same value system or we agree with what's going on. And so we've said no to everything, right? Like we pay for every single episode that is produced. And, but at the same time, like you said, like, I'm so very aware of my own biases. And I say like, listen, I'm a person who's trying to sell you something, right? I'm trying to sell you recovery. I'm maybe trying to sell you the latest workshop that we've got going on. We want you to come to Toronto, right? Like I am selling things for sure. But like you, David, I feel like, but I can't be bought. Like somebody isn't going to like call me up and say, hey, I'll pay you X amount of dollars to promote my product. It just doesn't like, I don't know if it's the therapist in me, if it's the integrity, the ethicality of, I'm not sure what it is, but there's like everything in me is screaming like, that's not a good idea. Don't do that. Don't hurt somebody. Right. And and I think that, you know, in our world today, like if you don't cross collaborate and promote each other's work, like we don't stand a chance, right? We have to, we have to do this. But I think the food companies have such a long history of being exploitative and neglecting people that like any kind of food product like makes, makes me nervous and probably makes the two of you nervous too. You know what I mean? Uh, but I was mailed something recently from a food company and like, I liked it. And I was like, I told them that I liked it, you know, and that like, I ended up like, I liked it so much. I made a short little video and I talked about it. You know what I mean? But it wasn't like, oh, well, this is an exchange. It was like, I actually thought this was a cool thing for my, fo- for my following. You know what I mean? And like, I felt like that was growth for me. Cause I wasn't like, Ooh, if it's big, if it's the food industry, it's evil. You know, I, I wasn't like that. I was like, no, this is actually a really good product. I believe in what they stand for. And I'm going to say something about it on my channel. And I was like, yeah, let's promote each other. Let's lift each other up. And when we can do it ways in ways that are mutually beneficial, if we're in alignment, we need that kind of synergy to survive in the online space. But when it's a big multinational billion dollar food company exploiting a dietitian who makes uh, less than X amount of, I don't even want to say the number per year. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, like that, there's something there, right. Uh, that we need to talk about. Absolutely. Yeah. So speaking of that, you know, you have said, I mean, I've heard you say this so many times, but, um, you know, you've, you've mentioned that like multiple treatment models must coexist because nature is heterogeneous, you know? So this is kind of like thinking about what you just said, like it's something you tried and you're not necessarily looking to get paid like in a sponsorship, but it's something that you might talk about, right? It might help somebody, right? So not all forms, you said not all forms of disordered eating are the same. And we're wondering if you can expand on this, you know, have you seen some well-intentioned treatments or even like product placements go wrong because it's the wrong treatment modality, or maybe like that person wasn't able or willing to offer something different for their client because of their own personal or professional bias or dogma. Can you talk more about that? I think this is truly the essence of the nutrition field being toxic, right? Which is that, and we've talked about this a hundred times, there's group, group formation camps, right? And the algorithm favors that if you can join a group and then the algorithm works alongside with that to push it out to people that are in that same camp, right? When you have the uh, Korean burrito, the algorithm just doesn't know what to do with it. You know what I mean? So it's like, wh- where do we, who who wants to eat this, right? You kind of got to like wait for people to try it and then come come eat it. But, you know, I think nutrition 
we the Academy of Nutrition Dietetics and some of the kind of bigger powers that be really want to create nutrition as like a more scientific field, right? Evidence-based. And I think that's why the calories and the macros and all those numbers are so pervasive, right? Because you want to make it into a hard science. But there's something that's really soft science about nutrition because, you know, we all have our own biases that we come to the table with. And I think our bias is oftentimes toward our own personal experience with food. It's often toward an alliance or an allegiance to a particular camp, or it's toward a treatment model that would be uh, profitable, that people are seeking treatment for. And so, yeah, it becomes very easy to say, I have a thing that I do, and I this is what I have to offer. And I think because there's so much competition in the nutrition space for clients, right? There's so many providers and practitioners that people like aren't willing to say, you know, maybe this isn't the best fit for my practice, you know, because especially because a lot of times people want to develop more expertise. So like, I want to learn about this from this person, right? Like bring it on, you know what I mean? Bring it on and I'll treat you and learn from you as I go. Right. And I don't think that there's anything necessarily wrong with that unless you're dealing with eating disorders, because there is a lot of room for people to do harm with eating disorders, you know, but in in general, I think people do want to be expansive, but are very limited to their own lane. And if you looked at that phenomenon in medicine, let's say there was, and you know, I've used this before, a doctor who had a very specific type of cancer treatment, you know, and they just loved that one treatment, right? It was one chemo drug, right? And that they they believed in it. They know people that did well with it and they took it themselves one time and they needed it, right? You know, if that doctor wanted to build a practice around that one drug and everyone who kind of came to them had had cancer, you know, got that same drug, like they would be identified as, you know, having that's malpractice, right? And we just don't have the same sort of kind of ethos in the nutrition field. It's, it's kind of like, you know, because we don't have the same like clear diagnoses and treatment. It's very wild west, right? There's a lot of different things that exist. And I'm not suggesting that there's clear treatment paths, you know, for all these different food disorders, right? There's not, there's actually, and I've written papers about this. There's like, I think two different treatments could actually work well for the same person, depending on where they have social support, where they identify, right? Where their kind of culture aligns, what their resources point to. And I don't think that there's always like one thing that only one thing that could work. But I do think that too many practitioners are one trick ponies. Well, and and that absolutely. And I think we see that like in the mental health addiction world as well, not just like an eating disorder. And again, probably in the medical field, you know, healthcare in general. But also it like makes me think about like personal recovery bias. And I think this shows up in the eating disorder world. It shows up in the addiction world. It shows up in the mental health world. And I mean, will you, you look like you have a lot to say on that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, best, the best example is how like in the addiction space, right? A lot of people that uh, work in substance use disorder treatment got sober in 12 step. You know what I mean? They got sober in 12 step and they brought their kind of 12 step skills with them from working with people one-on-one and, you know, maybe they got became certified as a drug and alcohol counselor or became a therapist or whatever it might be. And I think, you know, back in the early 2000s, you know, when, when, when my journey began, that was acceptable. It was acceptable that at a treatment center, everyone was sort of 12 step, right? And that like, this is kind of what we do around here. And then fast forward, right? As soon as like insurance started to recognize addiction treatment and more and more people came in through mental health, it was very obvious that like having a treatment center that was like heavy on the 12 steps was not supportive of the client care. And it became almost frowned upon, right? And I saw the field even turn in the opposite direction where it's like, no, 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 like we don't do, we don't do, we're not doing 12 step here, right? And then there's places, and I've seen this here in Los Angeles, there's places that are like, we are not, we are a non 12 step facility. And there's places that are like, we are a 12 step facility. And it's like the client kind of decides, you know, it's that same sort of split that we always see. And the same thing is true with the eating disorder field. A lot of the clinicians, including the dietitians, have their own personal eating disorder journey. 
that included, you know, perhaps, you know, a inclusive approach to food, intuitive eating, all foods fit was maybe helpful for their restrictive eating disorder. And then they lump all eating disorders together and say, because this is what worked well for me, there's a community here. This is what has to work for all people with eating disorders, right? And there isn't one approach for people with eating disorders. There isn't one approach for people with substance use disorders, right? And I believe that it's not even about, oh, there's lots of different approaches. There's lots of different intersection spaces of different approaches. So that's really what the wise mind is about. It's not about saying, I'm skilled in all these different things and I can decide what box someone falls onto. It's dismantling all the boxes and merging it all together in this very tricky space that the most minds can't really grasp because the mind needs boxes, right? I was on a podcast recently and I don't think it's going to get published because, yeah, I was talking to an eating disorder dietitian and therapist and I was describing why is my nutrition as pulling wisdom from mindful eating, intuitive eating, eating disorder recovery, functional medicine, right? Anti-inflammatory eating, food addiction. And I was like, there's all these different wisdoms out there. And I, and I, and I was describing why is my nutrition as like pulling from all of them and making this like kind of new safe place. And I think one of the hosts said, you can't mix those things, right? You like, you can't mix, you know, those things with those things. Those are different things when you mix them. Right. And I was just like, I was like, I disagree. I think that there's wisdom that you can make the Korean burrito. It can be made, you know what I'm saying? And it should be, you know, if you want to defend your traditional legacy, go for it. But like, we're making fusion over here. We're cooking up a storm. We're giving people new thoughts and new energy for these ever evolving brains because the brains are changing rapidly right now, you know? And so, yeah, it was an interesting experience. I've actually had a couple of podcasts that weren't published because I'm the guy, I'm just going to, I'm going to say, I'm going to speak my mind. I'm sorry. I'd rather do that. Yeah, this is why we love you so much and really respect your messaging because I think like we, who's meant to fit in a box in the first place? We have to create our own box if we're going to have one, right? And be willing to have it open and research and check out what fits for me, what doesn't fit for me. And I thought it was so interesting that you mentioned that about the substance use counselors. When I first went to university for substance and mental health, my whole class was about 20 years older than me. They'd all been working in the field for 20 plus years. So I felt really blessed because I got their experience, but none of them, like you said, had been certified. And now it was being required here in Canada that everyone have, you know, certification in order to work in hospitals and treatment centers. And so, yeah, how much times are actually changing and that that's a good thing. But I do want to go back to that 12 step a bit because I know there's a lot of our audience that maybe can't afford seeing a dietitian or nutritionist that specialize in you know, someone who knows how to work with someone with sugar or ultra processed food addiction. And so here, I'm wondering if you would be willing to speak on some of the 12 step food programs and certainly just comment on your thoughts around them. And I have to say, I'm certainly someone who got sober, food sober in a 12 step food program. I also realized that at some point that food plan was no longer serving me. There was some fear about now, am I not abstinence if I change the food plan? And so I really just wondered if you could share some of your nutritional wisdom about, you know, 12 step food programs. It's a box, right? And again, there are people that need boxes that don't have deep capacity for nuance. And that's not a a shot fired, right? It is just a reality of our world. Things need to be simple. I am not, I don't simplify things good enough. And I'm aware of that, right? Uh, I love nuance and gray area. So it's a it's a great box for the right people. I love the 12 steps. I love spirituality. I love social support. I like everything that it represents. But I think the question you're asking is like, what about the food and the food plans, right? If someone doesn't have money to meet with someone like me, you know, is that a, a reasonable option? And, you know, I, I could say that I've uh, I've been around the field long enough to know people that that's worked really well for, assuming that at some point 
they uh, fine tune, expand, diversify. And I've definitely had my fair share of people that it's just been a nightmare for and has made people worse. But I have a bias because those are the people that are more likely to come to me. I've done a lot of clinical work with people that have been on food plans and 12-step programs and want to make little changes to it, you know? And so they'll come to someone like me and, you know, like, you know, let's, let's diversify. Let's not eat the same thing two days in a row. Let's add some, you know, the, my, I'm like, can we add a few seeds? Like are seeds. Okay. You know, uh, <laughs> you know, and uh, I say that jokingly because, you know, people will cut out seeds because they're high calorie and that's, you know, it's like seeds are actually really beneficial for a lot of uh, forms of health. And if you focus on calories, you're going to cut out seeds. But if you focus on health and mental health, you're going to probably want to eat seeds. You know what I mean? And so these are the kind of things that I might be able to offer someone. But I do think that there's an emergence of OA, at least, where people are way more open and flexible. And I'm starting to see that as well. And uh, yeah, I'm rooting for people that want to do that path and also not feel super pass fail around food. There's something about like starting your day count over because you had an extra ounce of protein that is difficult for me. It's just really difficult for me. And I, I just don't see that as being part of the solution, you know? So, you know, I want to see more people in the 12-step programs being more flexible with their thing because we know one size doesn't fit all. There isn't going to be a food plan that works for everyone. And sometimes if you do have to see a dietitian or someone, someone comes to see me, it can't always be like figured out just in one session, you know, because like I have to learn about someone first before I can make feedback. And sometimes I have to learn about someone and then observe them for a week, maybe using the app and just like get a sense of who someone is before I can make that recommendation. So I've bumped heads with a few people because they have limited resources and they're like, I can afford one session. I was like, I need you to do two. I need you to do that one where we learn, we chat, and then another one when we do the building uh, together. I'll say one more thing about 12-step in general. I think, you know, as someone who identifies as uh, being a part of uh, that movement, one of the phenomenons that I have noticed is that there was always like a deep sense of commitment and altruism in both, you know, substance use disorder recovery and food recovery. But we have lived in a world where, you know, we have you know, like uh, treatment, right? And like a lot of people that were once, you know, like powerhouses of recovery in 12 step, you know, like the natural like progression is to eventually like kind of open your own center, right? Start your own thing and and do that. And I, and I, and I, and I think it's beautiful. Like a lot of my closest friends, you know, own facilities and stuff like that. People that I got sober with, but what ends up happening is, you know, some of the real strong forces that are in the 12 step eventually kind of leave. And then you're left with a lot of people that are shaky in their recovery, unsupervised. And I think that could be true for, you know, 12, uh, OA and other food-based programs as well. It's like, if the leadership was strong and people were encouraged to like, you know, work the steps and, you know, do what they got to do and make it more than just the food plan, you know, then I think people could do really, really well. But because people are all in crises management, trying to lose weight, they turn the the 12-step food program into like, oh, sticking to the food plan. And then you're just not getting the real benefit of what 12-step has to offer. Yeah, I was going to say, I imagine when you work with those individuals, it must really rub up against your clinical philosophy as far as, you know, many of these food plans are weighed and measured. And yet we're hearing about Wise Mind Nutrition app that's saying, yeah, we're not weighing and measuring. We're taking snapshots of like food groups and whatever else. But I don't I don't know how you feel about weighed and measured plans. Yeah. I mean, someone could absolutely weigh and measure their food using the Wise Mind Nutrition app. And there's a like an additional box if someone wants to add in that detail. It's just not pushed as the thing, right? And I think that we have AI now to like, you know, take a look at food and tell people like how much is it and what is roughly the calorie. And, you know, I, I want to do something different because I think a lot of people have this really strong belief that their nutrition has to be perfect and precise. And that just doesn't match nature. You know what I mean? That, and, and the level of like imprecision is super jarring to people. You know what I mean? And I get that. And I, I just have had a lot of clinical experience, like letting someone know 
that whether it was four, four ounces of protein or five ounces isn't the big detail. Whether or not it was two thirds of a cup or three quarters of a cup isn't the thing right now, right? And like when I dismantle the assumption of precision that people have around nutrition, I've seen people experience a level of freedom that is absolutely awesome. Uh, that being said, I understand how the human mind works and that level of vagueness is just too difficult for people. And there's some people that like, you can't, like you can't, they, they, now you have to make a decision at every time you do something. And that's just too difficult in an area that's supercharged, right? So I am not against weighing and measuring food. It's just that I am more biased toward helping someone drop out from a long history of that than trying to move someone toward that. But if someone's doing that and it's working really well and they come to me for like a consult and they want my advice, I'm not going to be inclined to like tell them to, to stop doing that. I might, I might, if I feel like it's clinically appropriate, I might challenge them, but I'm not so biased toward my own way of eating that I would, you know, bypass someone's lived experience and what they're telling me right there. So I think weighing and measuring can be a good tool, especially in the beginning phases, but I'm not convinced that all, the, spending the rest of your life weighing and measuring food is the jam. It can't be. I, I hear you. And I think, you know, if if the food plan wasn't a part of 12, uh, food 12 step program, I don't think there would be as many as there are. Right. There would just be OA, the original OA. But, you know, somebody decided avocados shouldn't be on there or somebody decided something else shouldn't be on there. But artificial sweetener should be right. Like they're just <laughs> there's all these different biases that showed up. And then, yeah, certainly I've I like you, I feel the same clinically. That's what I've experienced with folks who come from or even use those programs while working with us, you know, that oftentimes it's seen as like, this is the weight loss program versus, oh, this is how I find my freedom, my peace, my spirituality, my connection, reestablish or establish a new relationship with food and myself and whatever community. Yeah. And I think, I think one of the biggest criticisms of 12 step in general is like its inability to evolve. Mm -hmm. over time. Right. And I think, you know, there's people that have a problem with the, you know, sexist language in the big book and want to, you know, like there's things that need to be changed. And, you know, I am like a original 1939 kind of person, like I'm into that, you know what I mean? But I also understand like how important it is to bring it into the context of our current lives. And so back to the food thing in 1989, you know, being off avocados and being on an artificial sweetener, like might've been helpful to some people. The question is, is that helpful? Is that, does the current science and the current environment, the current guts that we have and the current brains that we have, is that true in 2023? And we'd probably be like, no, you better, you'd be better off eating the whole avocado and ditching the artificial sweeteners, right? But like the 12-step program doesn't know how to catch up to the science and evolve. That's why we need people like us, you know, to be able to talk to people and to individualize treatment. Absolutely. So speaking of 12-step and recovery and all of that, we know that you've recently celebrated 17 years in recovery. Mm -hmm. And we were wondering if you would share some words of wisdom with our listeners about your growth and evolution on your journey. You know, um, you had specifically stated, I had to be rigid to get free, but I didn't get free to spend the rest of my life being rigid. I want to be more like water and less like rocks. It's a powerful message of mental health recovery. And I would say that in the last year, and I am very fortunate to be able to facilitate some workshops and teach people about recovery and mental health, I've had the most growth that I've had in probably, you know, like people notice it, right? And I think part of it comes from having a daughter. Part of it comes from my parents getting old. My my mother has dementia and she lives in memory care. And like, I'm getting really close with my father, who is a very, very smart man, a, a, an esteemed uh, professor, okay, of orthopedic surgery, like my, my hero, you know, and he's in his 70s. And I'm able to see how cognitive inflexibility plays out. And I know it's a thing for older people, right? Like, for people that are aging, you're not like easily forming new ideas. You get kind of fixed. And I've been able to really see that I do have a level of rigidity about me that I get from my dad. And that I also get from being someone that had to be really rigid to stop drinking alcohol and doing hard drugs. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's, a, it's a tall order to, to like get sober the way I did in 2006, you know, to change my life completely. But what I've really been able to see is that 
while the rigidity was helpful, it's not going to be helpful to me as I move into my older ages. It's not helpful in the realm of mental health as a treatment provider. It's not helpful in my own personal recovery. And so being able to see how someone that has a predisposition to rigidity can move toward a more fluid way of moving through the world and understanding you know, these this infinite world of possibilities that exists out there, it creates a lot more inner peace, right? And that's what I want. I don't want to like dig my heels in any position and defend anything. I just want inner peace, right? And sometimes, you know, the extent to which human beings suffer is the extent to which people assume that they, what they what they know is the truth. You know what I mean? And people get so attached to this as being true because maybe it was true for them or maybe it was true at a time or maybe it just supports whatever agenda or narrative they have. But when you can really step into this infinite realm of, you know, dialectical thinking and multiple truths and be open to a lot of different possibilities, things aren't jarring as as, as the way they used to be. And that's been the real great gift of my recovery you know, I'm not like really turned off by the way other people do recovery. I don't feel threatened by other modalities. I think a big kind of theme in my field is like people are pissed off about how other people are doing it, right? Even just that term anti-diet, right? Like you're defining yourself based on what you're against. Why don't you define yourself based on what you're for rather than what you're against? So like, I don't feel like I'm strongly against anything, except big corrupt corporations. That's the thing that I'm like, let's go. We need to power to the people. And artificial sweeteners. <laughs> you know, I have, I, have a, uh, 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 I have a protein powder that has stevia in it. I just want to say that online, okay? Like I'm not so against it that like, I don't think it has a place. I just think people have been duped by it. People have been tricked by it. And just we need to it. wake people up. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more about what you said there with like the resistance to change to being the suffering and that, you know, allowing for change is where the peace happens. And so I'm wondering, you know, now that you found this peace, what's next for you? What are you working on? What are you excited about? Yeah. Thank you for that question. I, I couldn't be more excited about Wise Mind Nutrition and, you know, I, I really would like to see practitioners and providers lean into it and think about it as a potential tool for their clients. There's a lot of free features. So like, for example, if you're a coach, you know, check it out for free, log some meals, watch some videos. You could have one of your clients come in and you could follow them. It's all free. You know, you can just see if you like the energy. And I really want to build a community of people who think in this wise-minded way that are really trying to break free from polarization and to create non-toxic nutrition culture. And, you know, I put a lot of myself on the line, you know, being adversarial to uh, the gatekeeper culture, right? Speaking up about the injustices. And I think it really is for the sake of uh, practitioners who want to feel like like confident and competent in our career, but really for the patients, you know? I do have a thing for, for, for coaches and providers because of, you know, the way my mind works. I really like to supervise people and help them become efficient in thinking in ways that are nuanced and that can be super helpful to their clients. So yeah, right now my energy is focused on building a community of uh, other practitioners and providers that want to build Wise Mind Nutrition into their practice so that our jobs can be a little bit more fluid and you can you can know that people are getting lots of different energy and that they can find where they are the energetic match. And I believe that when we uh, take care of ourselves, you know, the universe matches us to the right energy. And I'm really hoping uh, to see Wise Mind Nutrition be a source of care for a lot of people. And um, I'm here to provide ongoing support. You know, if people want to hop on a Zoom and just learn more about it, I'm, I'm here for it. I want to really continue this conversation. And the coolest part about building an app, this is the coolest part. This is why I'm so glad I didn't build a course is that I can constantly update it, iterate it. It would be super easy for me to add in 
a link to this podcast on one of the modules. You know what I mean? Create a new video, change the energy, create some additional programming, get a guest who has a point of view that wants to make a two minute video and put it right in the app, right? So it's this living, breathing thing that I want to grow and change and evolve based on feedback from the users, right? So inviting all feedback on the Wise Mind Nutrition program, food log, and the experience all together. Amazing, David. Thank you so much for being here with us today. We love having you and I uh, can't wait to check out the app. Yeah, get it for Android. Get on that. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I know. It's the. It, I'm, trust me, I am on it. It is his nemesis right now. I know. I know. <laughs> Thank you again. Thank you both. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours.